This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. WVEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, your daily source for news, politics, and culture. Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at long COVID. It's a combination of chronic fatigue, brain fog, heart conditions, and other symptoms affecting an unknown number of Americans who had the illness. Long-haul COVID can dramatically impact a patient's life, leaving some unable to work or perform daily tasks. Here to explain what long COVID really looks like, we're joined in the studio by Dr. Pete Thomas. He's an internal medicine and preventative community medicine specialist at Howard Brown Health in Chicago. And joining us on the phone is Dr. David Petrino, Director of Rehabilitation Innovation for the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. Dr. Pete, help us better understand what is long COVID? How does having COVID turn into this extended condition? Yeah, so long COVID, or it can, it can be called long hauler syndrome, is basically a constellation of symptoms. And you should know, just because this is a widely discussed, is that the CDC has not given a definite definition of what long hauler syndrome or post-COVID syndrome is. Okay. But it is a constellation of syndromes that impacts almost every organ in the body. It's usually post-infection, uh, and it's a severe infection that usually causes the long hauler syndrome. We've, we have about 15 million cases in the United States. It comes in about at a rate of about 6.2% to 10% of the people with COVID uh, who have had COVID uh, symptoms. Yeah. So, um, so are, more, are some people more susceptible to getting long COVID than others? Yeah, absolutely. So patients who are not vaccinated, uh, diabetics tend to be more at risk. Uh, people with autoimmune disorders tend to be more at risk. And people with an infection called Epstein-Barr virus has been noted to be more at risk for developing long COVID syndrome. And uh, Dr. Petrino, how did your research come about? And when did you realize this aspect of the pandemic needed to be studied? Yeah, we we um, we were on to long COVID fairly early in the game. Um, uh, at Mount Sinai Hospital, we're, we're located in New York City, which, as most people know at this point, uh, was one of the, the first and hardest hit areas uh, for the first wave of COVID. So in March of 2020, my team uh, launched a uh, remote patient monitoring app for people with acute COVID who were not being hospitalized um, so that we could track their symptoms and get them to emergency services if they were rapidly worsening. Um, so we had been running that, that remote patient monitoring program for about a month and a half uh, and we'd seen thousands of patients, 
when we started to notice that a, per a percentage of our patients, um, roughly 10 to 15% of the patients on the app, just weren't recovering um, the way that others were. So they were sort of sitting, hitting six weeks, seven weeks of symptoms, and they were still coming back to the app and saying, I'm not feeling right. Mm -hmm. I'm extremely fatigued. I, I can't think the way I used to think. I can't go and do exertional things. Um, we didn't have a name for this. We started calling it post-acute COVID syndrome because it was a syndrome. It was a collection of symptoms. Yeah. It was post-acute to COVID. We weren't ready to call it post-COVID because we weren't sure that COVID was over in these patients or that they were experiencing some level of viral persistence. Yeah. And so that was what we named it. And then shortly after the term long COVID was coined, um, and then quite a while after that, the yeah. term PASC was brought about. Yeah, well, I think that that's, that brings up my first question in this discussion, which was just, you know, with so many different presentations of this thing, how do we know for certain someone has this condition? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think... Uh, you know, I, I think we should keep diagnosis of long COVID very, very simple uh, because the CDC encourages uh, with their clinical case definition, they encourage a clinical diagnosis. And the guidance that they provide is, look, anybody who had an acute COVID infection and after that acute COVID infection, um, one to three months after that acute COVID infection, if they're still experiencing, you know, severe symptoms or a worsening of their general health, that is something that we should consider as, as long COVID. Um, it's on us as researchers to then dig in and try to understand the different endotypes of long COVID, yeah. the different subtypes that, allow us to understand how to treat each one individually. So I spoke with a frequent reset guest named Kathy Kane Willis about her experience with, with long COVID. She's a public policy researcher and she was experiencing heart problems, which eventually improved, but her other symptoms, they gradually worsened. I, you know, I ended up bed bound. I had Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, which is one of the biomarkers of long COVID, they're starting to find these things, you know, starting, but doctors are not aware. Dr. Pete, what do you make of what Kathy has to say there? I think it's spot on. Um, you know, again, I think what um, many people don't understand is that we're still, the information and the research is ever, ever uh, evolving. And so many of the patients that we get in our clinics, um, they already have a predisposition for chronic diseases. So they already have COPD, diabetes. And so many of these symptoms that could be representative of post-COVID could also be just exacerbations of their other chronic health conditions. And so it's it's harder to tease out for these communities which is which, yeah. especially without having a definite biomarker or diagnostic test. Well, Dr. Pete, Kathy also mentioned to me she had moved away from Chicago mm -hmm. because of uh, what she called overstimulation. Right? Is this yeah. something that's commonly found among patients? Um, you know, so I think it's important for us to realize um, every one of these patients are different. And there is no typical post-COVID patient. 
what we do see frequently in the health centers is fatigue and brain fog. Those those tend to be the, the predominant uh, symptomatology that we'll see on a regular basis. But mm-hmm. other than that, the, the list can vary. Almost every organ system that you can think of from the GI tract up to the brain yeah. um, is all impacted. And so um, it's, you know, could it be that uh, there are um, exposures in the community that's in Chicago that's specific that could um, cause some exacerbations for her? It could be, but we don't know. There is no typical um, presentation for, for, for post-COVID. So, yeah, with no typical presentation, I mean, how do you diagnose it then? What's the process for you? Yeah, so I, I think it's it's just what my colleague said. We're basically going off the fact of who whoever had a severe COVID infection and even, you know, for us making sure that if it was a intensive care visit, something that was prolonged, um, if they're a diabetic, mm-hmm. um, if they have an autoimmune disorder, and then they have these symptoms that just will not go away. And whether it's uh, neuropathy or pain or tingling in their fingertips or toes, or it could be brain fog or um, uh, unclear cognition, uh, headaches, these are the people that we will then um, target and refer them on to a post-COVID clinic. Let's go back to Kathy. This is what she had to say about seeking medical help. It was incredibly difficult to get treatment. I would get referred to, I mean, I've seen 20 specialists, you know, and they wouldn't know why you would be referred. And there was no, like, clinical, like, oh, this is long COVID, what's happening? So I would get sent to the cardiologist. The cardiologist said exercise. That's actually do not do that. That's really bad for you. That can, you can end up bed bound, which is what happened to me. So Kathy's seen so many specialists for her condition. David, is it common to have to jump through so many hoops to get treatment? Um, unfortunately, yes. I mean, this is an extremely common um, uh, story, not just for long COVID, but for anyone with a complex chronic illness. So we're talking myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, dysautonomia, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, Lyme disease. These are conditions that typically, if you look at the statistics, they typically take somewhere in the neighborhood of four to seven years to get a diagnosis. And uh, and in the meantime, people tend to get misdiagnosed with, with certain things, most commonly psychogenic diagnoses like anxiety or depression, uh, which is incredibly damaging. You know, as as Kathy mentioned uh, on on her share, you know, um, you get misdiagnosed with these things where the treatment can actually be quite harmful um, to the actual disease process that is occurring. I see you nodding there. You agree, Dr. Pete? Yeah, I mean, it's and so part of this speaks toward this term that we use all the time is called health inequities. And so in many cases, um, there are structural barriers in our health system. And while we have one of the best systems in the world, there are still many structural barriers that prevent people from getting timely, fair and just care. Um, and, and it's unfortunate, but and and then to your point, you add on to this this sense that it's not a clear presentation. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of these chronic fatigue patients, you know, he's right. They, they, those patients could take years to diagnose, and 
And in between that, they're getting multiple diagnoses, depression, anxiety, uh, autoimmune disorders, and, and lots of workup, CAT scans, MRIs, the whole nine. And I know it's frustrating, um, and, and, it's, and it also depends on when she presented. Um, and because I can tell you earlier in the epidemic, we didn't know as much. And later and later, we're knowing, we have more information now than we ever did during, during the epidemic. Some patients with long COVID and chronic illnesses feel like they're not taken seriously by their doctors. You know, as sort of described there by Kathy, here's a social worker and therapist, Samantha Lane, who hosts a six-week online support group. Here's what she's been hearing from participants. A lot of them feel brushed aside and a lot of them are told Frequently women or female presenting people are told that this all in their head when they have very real physical symptoms. So, I mean, again, very strange to me that, you know, long COVID and chronic illness patients feel like they're not being taken seriously. Why would that be happening? Um, Well, I mean, short of a cardiopulmonary presentation, which means if you're not having chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, those kind of symptoms will get um, doctor's attention. But after the workup is, um, you know, un, it's not um, um, confirmed, then it's likely that the patient can get brushed off. But any sort of cardiopulmonary presentation will get taken seriously. Yeah. But other than that, it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's frustrating on both parts because many of the physicians are not well aware of long hauler syndrome. They, they are un equipped with um, biomarkers and diagnostic tests. Um, and so that sort of, it, it, it makes providers not feel as empowered. So, but, but again, I'm not making excuses for any patient being brushed off. That's unacceptable. But um, I think it should be known that if, even if patients could ask to see a specialist, that might be the sort of the, the uh, great equalizer, just getting into the hands of someone that is used to seeing these cases. Yeah. And so that's something that a patient can do to advocate for themselves. David, so that we're clear, is long COVID a disability? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, if that's up to me, but it certainly is up to uh, the United States government. And yes, according to the United States government, long COVID is recognized as a disability under the ADA, um, as it should be, because, you know, we, we have recently published uh, quite a bit of work showing that uh, of the people who come to our clinic, 50% will experience some change in their employment status as a result of the severity of their symptoms. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked earlier about your, your current research on this condition, David. What do researchers still not know? Well, I I think that uh, we're learning a lot every day. You know, I, I I tend to think that we should stop referring to long COVID as a mystery because it's it's not a mystery anymore. It's a post-viral illness, um, and it's it's rapidly becoming one of the most researched post-viral illnesses on the planet. Um, and so every day we're learning a little bit more and more about potential biomarkers, potential treatments. Um, new symptoms and the mechanisms behind new symptoms. What I think researchers need to start to really narrow down on now is how different potential biomarkers might map on to different symptom presentations of long COVID. Because 
if I'm sure of one thing when it comes to long COVID, I'm probably most sure of the fact that long COVID is not one condition. It is an umbrella term that we're using to describe all of the different ways that this virus has hurt our body and our physiology. And so the next step is really trying to understand how the clear organic uh, changes in physiology that my team and the team of you know other teams around the world yeah. are starting to see in the bodies of long COVID patients, how these physiological differences map on to different symptom presentations so that we can start to provide precision medical treatments to each of the different subtypes or endotypes of long COVID. I'll give you the last word, Dr. Pete. Yeah, well, the first thing I would tell anyone, if you're having any of these symptoms and if you had a severe presentation, go right to your primary care doctor and then quickly request to see a long COVID specialized clinic. We uh, Here in Chicago, there are several clinics here. Um, I can tell you at Howard Brown, we have an open access. If you if you need to come in to see your provider, you can come in as a walk-in and see your provider. And the main thing we want to emphasize is that your symptomatology matters, even when we don't know exactly what's going on. Your symptomatology matters, and there might be things that we can do in between you coming to see us as a primary care doc mm-hmm. and then you going to your long COVID specialty clinic. We've been speaking with Dr. Pete Thomas, internal medicine and preventative community medicine specialist at Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as well as Dr. David Petrino, director of rehabilitation innovation for the Mount Sinai Health System in New York. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Beyond fatigue, brain fog, and countless comorbidities, long COVID is a condition that can dramatically change a person's quality of life. Advocates have been fighting for long COVID to be recognized as a disability, and the Biden administration has been receptive to the idea. Still, the fight for proper accommodations continues. So how are long haulers, as they're sometimes called, being supported right now? And what do they need? We're joined by Nasha McRae, Director of Education for the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project. Nasha, you're someone who's been living with long COVID. How have things been for you? that I unfortunately is what we would call the first wave, those who got sick in spring of 2020 in the United States. And since my initial COVID infection, I like to call it a roller coaster. There were moments that I felt I was recovering and I had my energy and cognitive ability back, only to hit be hit with a whole new set of symptoms. And I think closing in on about three years since my long COVID prognosis, it's a roller coaster that I'm starting to learn how to accept mm-hmm. and pace myself to get through. Have you seen things progressively get better as far as treatment and, and just awareness of, of what's happening with you and your body? I would say that's probably the positive news I can, <laughs> I can go into my year three of long COVID with. The initial year that I got sick, when I would go to medical specialists or my primary care physician, they knew they were seeing this phenomenon with those who had COVID infections, who were in my age bracket, who were under 40, didn't have pre-existing conditions, but they weren't seeming to bounce back after two weeks. And after the first year, I am now starting to see more and more, especially after the Omicron wave we had earlier this year, that we're having specialists go, hey, You're not an anomaly. We don't know what to do or what treatments we can provide you, but we're now realizing this isn't 
a rarity that comes after a COVID infection. In fact, according to the CDC, typically one in five individuals post-COVID infection exhibits or showcases a post-COVID complication. Mm -hmm. So what work are you doing then with the uh, COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project? So the primary goal of C-19 Long Hauler's Advocacy Project is just to reach patients and let them know you're not just going through the motions. This is an actual condition that exists. And here are supports and resources available. Right now, there's not many supports or treatments available, but there are long COVID clinics that have specialists who are gathered together in order to tackle this multi-systemic issue that is affecting people's health. Other things is providing patient support and advocacy, because a lot of times when you're dealing with post-COVID complications, not only is your health, but your financial and mental health suffer as well. So besides providing those supports, education, which is where I come in, and making sure not only people understand what they're going through, but understand what they can do to manage their symptoms and reduce their risk of falling further into what I call medical debt or health debt by pacing and avoiding repeated COVID infections. Let's bring a couple more voices into this conversation. Fiona Lowenstein is the founder of the Body Politic COVID-19 Support Group and editor of the Long COVID Survival Guide. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. And Shamir Smith is a long COVID patient and advocate in Baltimore and contributor to that survival guide as well. Welcome, Shamir. Hey, Sasha. Thank you for having me as well. Thank you. Shamir, you got sick in March of 2020. So mm-hmm. how, how did your condition worsen over time? Oh, it was um, it happened so fast that I, I just I simply didn't know what was happening. As Nisha said, it was a roller coaster. It felt like it was a, a whirlwind of symptoms. Um, initially, it was just dizziness. It was uh, a little bit of nausea. It was a, a you know, a, a very fiery pain in my spinal area. Um, wow. It was a diarrhea, which turned into constipation for about four weeks. And then it became um, it became three months of not eating anything, not consuming any type of food, just kind of chucking, chuggling some water and, um, you know, maybe some power aid for, you know, for electrolytes, um, inability, in, inability to to speak very much. Um, I was very tired and exhausted all the time. Um, I lost my memory. I didn't even know when people were calling my phone and and, and people that I normally would know. I had no recollection recollection of who they were. Um, I was not able to walk very far. Um, And um, I lost my vision as well within the first month of the the initial symptoms that um, that I experienced. And so it was a whole. Yeah, it was a, a myriad of things I experienced. Um, and, and that I endured um, in order to, uh, I mean, you know, as a long COVID patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. D- did you have any idea what was going on at that time? I didn't. All I knew was that I was very, very sick and that it was COVID. And I also knew that every time I went to a hospital or a doctor that I was being dismissed and told that just wait two weeks. And Sasha, I'm afraid to tell you that I'm still waiting for those two weeks to come. And we're rolling into our third year with long COVID. Wow. Um, Let me bring Fiona into this conversation. What motivated you to get involved in this work? 
Yeah, so I, I got sick at the very beginning of the pandemic as well. And I think uh, what was unique about my case, uh, you know, somewhat unique for, for long COVID was that I was hospitalized. And as terrifying as that experience was, in many ways, I was lucky because that is how I got access to a COVID-19 test at a time when many other people were being turned away. Um, and it's how I got access to providers quite early on as well, when others were basically having to care for themselves at home. I'm, I'm a journalist, and so as soon as I kind of saw what was going on, I felt like I had an obligation to really share my experience. And young patients started reaching out to me saying, you know, I'm sick too, and I'm not getting better. Mm -hmm. um, and so over time, it really became clear that, that first of all, you know, I wasn't the only person who was taking a little longer to recover, but also um, that value of having people that I could speak to, you know, and these were folks kind of coming into my Instagram DMs or that sort of thing. Yeah. Having even one or two people who understood what I was going through was everything. And so, you know, I had a friend who had, who we believe infected me, who was dealing with similar long-term symptoms. And we said, we, what we have here, the ability to validate each other's experience, the ability to loose for answers on the internet together, that is something that all COVID patients should have. And of course, at this time, we, we weren't even using the term long COVID. Yeah, well, here's someone else who could understand what you folks were going through. I, I want to play a soundbite from former Reset guest Kathy Kane Willis, because she had something to say about dealing with long COVID um, as compared to other treatments that she's gone through. Because I kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And there's only so much you can push and your body just can't anymore. And so, I mean, everything that I ended up taking that helped a little bit were things that I had to advocate for, for myself. Does any of this sound familiar to you, Shamir? Absolutely. Um, I, I, it, so much of it resonates with me because, um, I treat my, uh, my body now um, and, and preserving my energy like a bank. I oftentimes think, think of my body as a bank that's full of savings. And the, and the less I push, the more savings I'm able to, um, to place into my account. And so um, I, I totally understand that need because there's, there's, there's a part of us that wants our, our minds want us so badly to return back to those old bodies. And so initially what you do is you push, you push, you push until you realize that you make yourself sicker, you make yourself weaker and, and you're not able to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've learned so much about my body after almost three years of living with this is that I have to make sure that my savings account is high and full of money in order for me to be functional in the world that we, we live in. And it's not made easy by ableist, uh, uh, you know, ableist who who don't ex who don't understand the nature of disability, and also you know by people who um, misjudge us based upon race and gender as well. And so um, I, that's why we advocate because there have been so many stigmas wrapped around long COVID, and it affects so many different people. Especially, you know, I keep my eye on marginalized communities like the Black and Latino communities, as yeah. well as people who were already disabled prior to long COVID. So, Nisha, you have helped create a sort of community and a network for COVID long haulers to essentially come together, right? So, how has having this community helped? So I won't take all the credit. I'll say I've just been a big helper in the background. But one of the things that we witness in our communities, whether it's C-19 Long Haulers Advocacy Project or whether it's Body Politic or any other group that's centered around making sure patients 
have a place to monitor their symptoms, do cross-analysis of what they're going through, who they should be going to, or what treatments should they be pursuing in order to manage their long COVID. We've noticed that folks who felt they were in silos now have a sense of purpose and hope. They have a goal or a direction to strive for. And that is something I've witnessed in the lupus community. I've witnessed in cancer communities, which we don't really think about it, but there's always long-term consequences to help. Yeah. Whenever we're dealing with an illness, whether it's a virus, bacterial, or even an accident, we're all familiar with learning long-term consequences, but very rarely are we given the tools on how to manage those consequences. And that's what these patient advocacy spaces, whether on Facebook or Slack, provide. And my goal, as my background being in nonprofit STEM education, is I understand that when people are in chaos, they need knowledge in order to not fear the chaos around them. And long COVID is one of the most chaotic events for my young life and for the lives of millions of Americans. And for me to be able to provide that knowledge or gather that knowledge and help disperse or disseminate it to those dealing with that chaos is what gives my life purpose Mm -hmm. and a lot of other people, regardless of severity, a sense of purpose of we can make it through this storm. So for some people living with severe long COVID, it can really impact their ability to work. It can also be really difficult to get disability benefits as well. Let's hear a bit more from Kathy Kane Willis about her experience. I didn't get paid for like months at a time. I don't know how disabled I would have been because I would have had to go back to work, which would have ended me up worse off in bed. I mean, I was so bad, Sasha, and that like I had to lay in bed with a blindfold over my eyes and not listen to anything. Fiona, the federal government does consider long COVID a disability, but that doesn't make it any easier for long haulers to actually get the financial support, right? It can be very difficult, uh, both because it it can just be very difficult to qualify for Social Security disability insurance, um, as well as, you know, workers' comp and some of the other avenues that that folks are trying to take. Um, But it's also very difficult because, uh, you know, and that's in general, but it's also very difficult because there is a lack of understanding about long COVID. And so, you know, the clip you just played is something that I think we're all very worried about. Um, Folks are being kind of forced back into work. And especially when you're thinking about applying for long-term disability, you have to prove that your ability to work uh, has been impaired for at least a year. So that is, you know, a year that folks are going without any sort of support and in many cases are having to push themselves financially. There's also not enough public health messaging um, about long COVID in general, and there's not enough advice coming from government officials about different steps that that people can take. I think that a lot of long haulers are actually reticent to to accept the term disability, um, not necessarily understanding that that, you know, disability can have an expansive definition, that that long COVID isn't for some people a dynamic disability. where at times, you know, you may you may be able to function better than other times, um, but that these crashes really can impair your ability to work and do daily tasks. Um, yeah. And so I think it's, it's crucial to kind of understand that, you know, we have a chapter in our book called With Disability Comes Rights, right? These rights are very imperfect, and the processes for accessing these benefits should be much better. But there's still a lot of offerings out there that I think a lot of long haulers are just simply unaware of. Shamir, do you think that long COVID almost has exposed the challenges that people with chronic illnesses have been experiencing even before this long COVID 
became a thing? Absolutely. You know, what I found um, interesting and, and quite funny um, in a sarcastic way was in December 2020 when I looked at the CDC and, you know, a, a news statement that they made. And they said, you know, with long COVID or, you know, with, with at that time we were calling it post-COVID something, they were saying that, you know, um, after uh, what we've seen is we've seen that this really affects marginalized communities and low-income communities and urban communities. And I thought to myself, I said, where has the CDC been? Because um, people with chronic illness, whether it is because of diabetes, whether it's because of HIV or AIDS, whether it's because uh, of long COVID, whether it's become a, because of MECFS, they we've been suffering. But the, the, the issue is, and, and what has really polarized so many people, yeah. is that in such a short time, two and a half years, uh, the amount of long COVID patients and, and the fact that the MECFS communities and other chronic illness communities have banded together to start this larger message of the fact that the federal government needs to change policy and needs to create more policies and bills that protect those of us with chronic illness. I don't think that the federal government was prepared for the loud uh, uh, way in which we kind of bust through the doors in order to make ourselves known and heard. And so um, I think there's still so much work to do Mm -hmm. um, that we need to, you know, because, you know, you know, Based upon recent elections, you know, there's there's a chance that our, our Social Security uh, benefits and our Medicare may be up for uh, for, for for debate or, um, you know, t- to be considered annually. And many people who if one in five people are contracting long covid and getting long covid, we cannot afford to yeah. not g- give them any type of financial support. So absolutely, it has. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, Kathy Kane Willis, who we've been hearing from. Throughout this this segment, she did mention when I spoke with her that having long COVID was worse than going through breast cancer treatment, which she had been through before. Uh, but in the interest of time, I want you all to leave us with this. How do you think people can support others who are living with co- with long COVID? I'll start with you, Nasha. I would say... For those who are listening, you may not understand what long COVID is. You may not understand that some people, it's Russian roulette, and they're the ones who are struck with long COVID, while your experience with a COVID infection was not as drastic or is not as life-changing. What I see missing in the space right now is empathy, and not just empathy towards those with long COVID, but empathy towards those who are immunocompromised. We stand on the shoulders of those who have suffered for years before us. And one thing that has echoed that hasn't changed in American society is our dismissal of the humanity of our fellow man. We're a country that prides ourselves on, give us your weak and your weary and your poor. And yet time and time again, we seem to have almost a metallic taste in our mouth when we're actually called up to bat to do so. As we head into fall and winter, this is an extremely delicate time for those with long COVID or those who are immunocompromised. Please exercise that empathy that this may be a time period that those who could hide or mask their symptoms or mask what they're dealing with can no longer mask it. And they actually have to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Show empathy, show consideration, and show support that what your struggle is for this fall and winter may not be the same struggle as your fellow man. And do not question it, align with it. 
Give us a quick final thought, Fiona. I would say educate yourself on access issues, educate yourself on invisible disabilities, and on infection-associated chronic illnesses, because long COVID is not the first post-viral illness of this type. There are millions of people who have been sidelined from society for decades for diseases like myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme, et cetera. I would also urge folks to get creative with caregiving. Care can come in many forms. We've seen folks deliver groceries, do virtual check-ins via FaceTime, and trust your fellow long haulers experience. And then finally, we really need allies who are not living with this disease to spread the word. Because again, our public health departments are not sharing enough info on the risk of long COVID or how to identify it and care for someone with that illness. So if you are someone out there who knows someone with long COVID or understands this illness to any degree, talk about it, bring it out of the shadows. Yeah. That is what helps to destigmatize this experience for patients. We'll have to leave it there. Fiona Lowenstein is the founder of the Body Politic COVID-19 Support Group and the editor of the Long COVID Survival Guide. Nasha McRae is the director of education for the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project. And Shamir Smith is a long COVID patient and advocate in Baltimore. Thank you so much for your time. This episode of Reset was produced by Micah Yason and Michael Liptrot, and it was edited by Ethan Schwab. If you want more thoughtful conversations like this, consider subscribing to our podcast. We cover everything happening in the news here in Chicago and around the globe. And when you subscribe, please leave us a rating. That helps more listeners find us. That's all for Reset. We'll see you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.